Okay, so last week we spent some time, we've been walking through this, this series of Nehemiah. He got a vision from God. It was, his heart was broken. God gave him a vision. God was with him. He waited on God's timing, and he uh, stepped out. Last week's sermon, if anybody missed it, it's online, but it was essentially about something that's really been laid on my heart pretty heavily, and I don't think I'm the only pastor who God's laying this on the heart of. I'm hearing other preachers preaching around the same topic, and that's this idea of authentic Christianity. You know, I, I just get a sense that the church today isn't where it needs to be. And a lot of people say it's because of the culture today. You know, the culture today is just, is just so, in, you know, it's, it's anti-Christian or it's anti-God. Uh, and, and I'm thinking that's such a cop-out. Because if you think this is bad, you should have seen the Roman culture that the Christian church got started in. You know, and it was definitely against to the point where they're killing Christians and feeding them to lions. That's a hostile environment. You know, we might have somebody make fun of us on Facebook. It's not the same thing, okay? It's not the problem that Christianity has changed or the culture has gotten worse. The church has gotten weaker, I really believe. And I, I think we just need some authentic Christians to step up and take the challenge to be authentic again. You know, 12 authentic Christians changed the world. So, you know, I'm kind of on that a little bit. Um, so, if you're saying, well, I don't know. You know, I'd like to be an authentic Christian. How do I know if I am? Let me give you a really quick little litmus test. Think about your prayer life. For some of you, that won't take long. But uh, think about your prayer life and think about what it's been like. And then I want you to compare it to this because authentic Christians ask God what He wants. False Christians ask only for what they want. Look at your prayer. You know, after you're done, think back. Did you spend all the time telling God what you needed Him to do for you? Did you try, try to get him to, to, to say, you know what, uh, that's what I need. So go get on that, please, God, because you said you love me. Prove it by doing all these things for me. The, the false Christians, I think, uh, where the church kind of goes wrong is we really become focused on what we want and we stop becoming focused on what God wants. I didn't come up with that, by the way, as a litmus test. Jesus Christ gave it to us. Um, when the disciples came up to him and said, hey, uh, how should we pray? He gave them this very famous prayer that depending on what church you came out of when growing up, you may call it the Our Father, you may call it the Lord's Prayer, uh, but it shows up in the Gospels. And if you look at the pattern of this prayer, just the structure of it, it starts off by just saying, God, you're great, glorious, and hallowed be your name. And then it goes from there into these sections. The next thing, the very number one thing on that list is doing God's will on earth the way it gets done in heaven. That's like Jesus' number one thing. First thing. Then it comes to our provision, what we need. Then it comes to our forgiveness. And then there's this other thing that people forget about, which is our promise to forgive in return. And then finally it ends up with our protection. If, if you want to know what, how to pray, you know, the, Jesus gave us a structure for how to pray. These elements need to be in them. And we kind of skip everything and just stay all the time on our provision and our protection. Amen. So, if we're going to be authentic Christians, we've got to start praying the prayers that Jesus told us to, prayer, to pray. And uh, we need to understand that a lot of times what we do is we try to take uh, what we want done anyway and stamp with God's approval, which is what our prayers really are. God, please approve this. Thank you. So I can go out and do it, right? Uh, God's work is not doing your will in His name. That's, that's not how this works. We're doing His will, not our will, in His name. Now, a lot of people, they kind of go out there and they start doing that. They're doing what they want to do and they're doing the name of Jesus and then it kind of fails. Now they got a problem because God can't fail. In fact, He can do anything except fail. And so, if something fails somehow, now we need to rewrite history a little bit to kind of protect ourselves because it looks like we're not as righteous as we're pretending to be. 
And so a lot of people actually spend more time kind of working around this idea why well, I got to make sure that I'm not seen badly by my friends, my neighbors, and my family. Uh, and what we learned last week in Nehemiah was we really need to spend less time working on a reputation and more time working on our righteousness. That's really the main thing. And those people who have like these visions from like, I think God really wants me to do something great in the community or in my family or at work or, or something. I want to start a new ministry and I'm going to need that reputation to make that work. I'm just warning you that's a trap. Because anytime you're worrying about what other people are thinking about you, you've taken your focus on what matters. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about you. What matters is what Jesus thinks about you, what the Heavenly Father thinks about you. In fact, uh, we see this happen in the book of John. You know, have you ever wondered why so many people rejected Jesus? It wasn't because they didn't believe him. It's because they were worried. In fact, it says here in John 12, even among the rulers, many believed in Jesus. But because of those Pharisees, they wouldn't confess him, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. They weren't willing to be kicked out of a dead church to follow a living Christ. And I think a lot of us kind of get caught up in that trap a little bit. But even if you're being called into a ministry of some sort in your family or at work or whatever, if, if that's where you are in your life, you need to understand something. God cares as much about the work that he's doing in you as the work he's going to do through you. And this should be a warning shot to every preacher, including me. Because, you know, I think God's calling us to great things here. But the most important thing is your relationship with God. And, and if we do that, if we, if we stay focused on that, we don't have to worry about because uh, Philippians, he says, he's always working in you. God is helping you obey him. God is doing what he wants done in you. Let me put it another way. You're, you're worrying about you know, doing this great work. You are God's great work. And you can't, you can't ruin that. You can't sacrifice that in, in the hopes of doing something greater for God and he's going to be okay with it because that's it. And God will never sacrifice his relationship with you to accomplish anything. He'll never do that. And I have people sometimes tell me this dilemma they're in, this decision they have to make. And, and they ask me this question, you know, what should I do? My question always is, well, if you do that, is it going to strengthen your relationship with God or weaken it? Some people will deliberately weaken their relationship. It'll take them out. You know, some new job will take them out of church, take them out of community fellowship or whatever. They'll do that to pull them away and think God's going to bless it. God wants a relationship with you first and foremost. And we have to understand it coming in. The other thing that happens is, is you get this vision from God and it includes some stuff we don't necessarily like. You know, things like, oh, I don't know, sacrifice. You know, I don't like that. Or, or I need to sacrifice my reputation or I need, to, I need to sacrifice my comfort. Or it could be money or it could be anything. And so we have to sacrifice friendship sometimes. And so we're, we're in a situation where uh, God's given us a vision of what to do and we don't like the full vision. So we try to do a version of his vision. That always fails, by the way. You cannot just do a version of the vision. You have to do the vision as God gives it to you. That's the way it works. If you try, those victories will never last, and the accomplishments you make that way will not endure. Oh, you can manipulate things and get by and kind of have this thing that looks like it, but it will never, ever endure. We see this in the final book of the Bible, Revelation. Jesus comes back and he judges these seven churches, and the churches are actually uh, just kind of little character traits of Christians. They're different kind of Christians. He says to this one, he says, look, I know the things you do. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find your actions don't even meet the requirements of God. He says, you have a reputation, that's a good one, of being alive. There are a lot of people, and there are a lot of churches that have this reputation of being alive, but they're dead. 
because they're not worried about a relationship with the living God. They're off doing their own thing. Okay, so that's kind of a recap on last week. Here's a preview for this week. And we're actually going to get into Nehemiah, I promise, I promise, I promise. Uh, so this week we have to understand that if we turn ourselves over to God, if we're following his vision and we're not trying to manipulate anybody, we're just doing what he tells us to do, he's going to take care of it. And Solomon puts it like this, the Lord will perfect that which concerns me. That doesn't mean things which I'm concerned about. That's all things pertaining to me. He says, trust God. He's going to perfect it. He's going to work it all out, right? And that does not necessarily, though, mean everything's going to go great. And, and I don't know where this comes from. I've heard preachers preach it. Uh, I've seen churches who, you know, people who preach it have churches filled because people want to hear it. Um, and you can even maybe pick a couple verses of the Bible and kind of try to make it sound like it. once you become saved, man, it's going to be smooth sailing from here on out, victory to victory, mountaintop to mountaintop. But you can't get that if you read any of the stories of the Bible. I mean, there's not one single story that that's true of. Joseph spends 12 years in prison. <laughs> Moses, you know, 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, Jesus gets humiliated, beaten, and, and, and crucified. Paul gets beat, thrown in jail, and eventually will, will be beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. I, I don't know where this idea that once you become saved, whoa, everything's just rosy. Um, let me put it this way. A lot of people kind of preach a Disneyland um, Christianity. And everything's going to be, it's, you're going to become a Christian. It's going to be the happiest place on earth. And everything's going to be great. I hate to break it to you, but it's hallelujah, not hakuna matata. I mean, as if you just think that you're going to roll through life with no worries once you become a Christian, uh, I got news for you. It's not going to be that way. It can only be that way if you sit there and do nothing. Those Christians may be able to roll through life, uh, but they're not going to accomplish anything. And one day they're going to be held account to that. So now we're going to finally get into Nehemiah with this as a backdrop. And if I had live music here and I had an organist, he would now play the, the chord. Dun, 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 you know. Because this is where the story is going to be with Nehemiah. Last week was kind of great. He got everything he wanted. He got letters you know, from, the, from, from the king and he, he took off and he's got his plan and everything is executing perfectly. And we pick up right there and he's moving through the lands. He's got letters to get by all the governors. Every Persian government says, hey, yeah, Nehemiah, come on through our territory. He has a small little tiny guard that's protecting him from, you know, the nefarious uh, thieves and things. He goes on. But then there's this little tiny phrase at the end of this. Now, he's not in Jerusalem yet, but he adds this in the end of it. And he says, when Sambalot and Tobiah heard about it, so he's actually going to tell me uh, and you, what, what happened, what's happening in Israel as he's traveling there. I'm thinking, how in the world does he, does he know that? Right? So he's, like, he's, on, he's in route right now to Jerusalem. He's not there yet. He already knows what Sambalot and Tobiah think about him. I'm thinking, man, did they send him a memo or something? You know, because that's how they used to work in my job. You get those memos, tell you what's going to happen. You guys get memos. You guys know about memos. We have sort of a problem here. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry about that. I, I forgot. Hmm. Did you see the memo about this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I have the memo right here. I just uh, forgot. There's no problem. Yeah. If you could just go ahead and make sure you do that from now on, that would be great. And uh, I'll go ahead and make sure you get another copy of that memo. Okay? Yeah, no, I, bye I, bye I, I have the memo. I've got it. It's right. Yeah, use memos for everything, right? Maybe they sent him a memo. Maybe they say, hey, uh, don't worry about it. Uh, but if they sent him a memo, it wouldn't have been what you may have, may have expected. Because these two guys, by the way, are basically the head of the church in Jerusalem and the head of the government there. 
And they were displeased to hear that someone was coming to look after the welfare of Israel. In other words, they heard the news that someone's coming to see that the Jews are okay. They're in charge of Jerusalem and they're upset about that because they had everything under control. They didn't need help. By the way, it was a disaster, right? <laughs> there has no walls. It's been all torn down and everything has been destroyed. But they, don't worry, we got this. Have you ever met people who are in the middle of a disaster and you want to help them? I got this. I'm good. I'm good. I got this. You know, I don't need any help at all. I've got this. I'm managing this disaster fine. Who were these guys, by the way? Well, the interesting thing is Sambalot, they tell us, was a Horonite, which was a city in Moab. And uh, Tobiah was an Ammonite. And why that's interesting, those of you who were here for the Ruth series uh, know a little bit about Moab. And the Ammonites, they were forbidden to be in the assembly of God. Uh, There's a very corrupt story behind the, the, the beginning of their, of their kingdoms or, or, or their lineage. So they were forbidden to be there. They were considered unclean. They were forbidden to be there. They weren't just there. They were in charge. Hey, listen, there are a lot of places right now where the enemy's not just there. The enemy's in charge, including, unfortunately, some churches I've been in. Enemies in charge. And, and so we have to understand that when we're coming in, not everybody's going to greet us saying, hey, this is great. You're, you're here from God with a new vision for, for this, and you're going to help restore it and make it better. And you think, oh, this will be just great. No, you're going to face opposition. You need to know that. And you need to know that because of one simple thing. Motion causes friction. If you're sitting around doing nothing, you won't face opposition. But when you start moving in the name of the Lord, you are going to cause friction. It's just going to happen because there's always people who are benefiting from the way things are. I don't care if, if you go to Wexford or Duquesne. I don't care what neighborhood you go into. There's somebody, they're benefiting from it. And they don't want that to change. They, they don't want that at all. I mean, I've been in, in all kinds of places where things are dying around them. and They can see it. You know, churches dwindling and, 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 and cities falling apart. They're, they got it. We're good. Because they're still benefiting from it. So here's the situation. He's coming in there. He's already heard somehow, memo or, or smoke signals somehow. He knows he's about to face opposition when he gets to Jerusalem. He's on his way there. He finally arrives. What would you do? Let's think about it for a minute. You know you're going to face opposition from the religious and civic leaders of the region. The people may know you're coming, but they don't know what you're doing because no one knows what he's doing. He's coming with a bunch of lumber and he's coming with a guard to protect him. No one knows what he's there for. What would you do first? Maybe you'd write a letter back, you know, shoot out that email. Here's what's going to happen. You know, counter memo to the memo. <laughs> Maybe you get there and first thing you do, you call a meeting with the leaders. Hey, we need to let you know this is what's going to happen. Maybe that'd be good. Uh, me, I'd look for a microphone in a square. Hey, stand up on a little tiny soapbox with a microphone. I'd start giving some kind of a fiery speech and try to rouse people. Uh, Nehemiah does none of those things. Nehemiah says this, I went to Jerusalem and I was there for three days. What was he doing? He wasn't doing anything. He was just there for three days. He did nothing. He went to his home his, that he's renting while he's there. And he went inside and he took a nap. He's worn out. This guy's traveled from Persia. That was a long way to go. He's tired. He knows he's going to face opposition. He knows that he's going to face Sambalit eventually. And, and he, can, he knows that these people are going to have to be raised up to, to, to come and follow him. He knows all that's in front of him. So he does the smartest thing possible. He gets some rest. 
because a tired Christian is much easier to discourage. Yeah, Corey Ten Boom's right. If the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Because if he can wear you down, it is very easy to discourage you. And I think I'm seeing some nodding heads. I think we know that, right? We've had this in our lives. When you get worn down, it is very easy to get discouraged. Little problems become big problems when you're tired and worn out, right? And so this, he knows this is what's going to happen. He says, I'm going to face all this. I need a nap. I love Nehemiah. He's wise. Don't forget when Elijah goes running to God saying, I'm, everything's gone bad and I'm, just kill me. God, first thing he does is take a nap. Second thing he does, he feeds him. Then he tells him to take another nap and he feeds him again. And then he sees him. Right? God understands that we're human beings and we need rest. And if you're wearing yourself out, trying to do the right thing, but you're wearing yourself out, you're setting yourself up to be discouraged by the enemy. Sometimes the best thing you can do is just take a nap. Jesus knows this. He tells his disciples at one point in Mark, he says, Jesus said to them, look, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. This must be like my wife's favorite scripture. She should memorize this and quote it, because you always got to have time to eat, right, hon? I mean, she's like, got to eat. You have to eat. Stop it. Eat right now, right? This is what Jesus is saying. He said, whoa, stop. You got to eat. And Jesus knows. And you got to rest. Come away. And, but, but there's poor and there's sick. They'll always be poor. They'll always be sick. They'll always be work. It won't go away. It'll always be there. But you need to rest because you can't afford to let Satan discourage you. So it, it, you know, there's a rhythm to life. And there is a moment when you have to rest. Don't stay resting forever. But you have to have a moment to rest. If you don't, you're in big, big, big trouble. In other words, if you see a hill in the distance, maybe you rest before you get there. You're not going to rest on it, I'll tell you that. Uh, having fought a few hills, I can tell you that for sure. Okay, so uh, now, while Nehemiah is rested, he gets up, and he gets up in the night. I arose in the night, and a few men went with me. I didn't tell anyone what my God was putting in my mind to do for Jerusalem. Now, he has the whole plan worked out. He knows he has God's approval. God sent him the sign. He acted upon it. The king has rubber-stamped God's plan. He knows this is from God, but he hasn't told a single soul what he's going to do. We need to maybe learn a little bit from Nehemiah. I was listening to a, a writer that I greatly admire once, and somebody asked him, what's the biggest mistake beginner writers make? And he said, talking about their story. Not because it's going to get stolen or anything like that, but because by talking about it, they're telling the story. And as they tell the story more and more, they have less need to write it. Because writing is telling a story, right? And if you get it out by telling everybody, you don't need to write it anymore. He said, you need to keep that buried so there's still a burning in your soul that you've got to get the story out. Or you'll never finish it. I think there's some truth to that. I think Nehemiah knew that too. He's not going to tell anybody yet what's about to happen. He knows, but he's not letting it out. Not yet. He didn't tell anybody. There was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. In other words, he was not going anywhere to make a sacrifice. He was going up in the middle of the night. Listen, successful Christians will spend more time praying and planning than they do talking and complaining. Can I get an amen? All right? Or even you know, texting and picture taking. And we have a lot, we do a lot of things except planning and praying. He knows he's going to have to rebuild the city, but he's never seen it. Now, he could have them walk him around and tell him what's wrong. That's a disaster happening, right? Because they're just going to try to discourage him. 
He said, I don't need anybody else because God gave him the vision. I want to see it for myself. and I want God to tell me what needs to be done. So he goes out and boy, is it depressing because he goes out through the valley gate. Now, we're going to start, by the way, a little tiny mini section. We're going to look at each of these gates again because each of these gates are symbolic of your life and what's going on in your life. It's really cool how the book of Nehemiah fits into your life. Um, so I walked out through the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and onto the refuse gate. That's a nice way of putting it. It was actually called <clears throat> the dung gate. Yes, that's part of your life too. Uh, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem. Okay. Which were broken down. Its gates which were consumed by fire. They've been conquered many times. Every time they try to do this, by the way, they got attacked and, they tore them, and the raiders tore them down again. They didn't want gates there. They didn't want a wall there. Why? Because it's easier to keep them subjugated without protection. And that's why, that's why, that's why when, when he went there, the first thing he wanted to do, he wanted to rebuild everybody, but he started by building protection around everybody. We need to pay attention to how Nehemiah handled this. It's beautiful. Okay, so then he passed by the fountain gate, which is supposed to be beautiful with the king's pool. There was no place for my mount to pass. He had to get off his donkey and walk around, leading him. He couldn't get the donkey through it. That's how bad it was. He's kind of letting us know. It's just horrible how bad things are right now. And then I went up by night, again, by, through the ravine and inspected the wall. And then I entered the valley gate again and returned home. Now, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I, as I yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or even the people who were going to actually do the work. He's told absolutely nobody. Why? Because God hasn't told him to yet. We talked last week about waiting for God's timing. That's not just to start. You know, God says go and we go. It's more than that. We have to wait for God's timing for everything. And God says, no, don't tell him yet. I've got to work with you on this. So he had to lay something on his heart. In Proverbs, it says it this way. It says, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord will direct his steps. So that's, that's what we have to let. We have to let him do it. And I could put it this way. A godly leader does not come to the people with a problem. He comes to them with God's plan. It's not enough to say, well, this is our problem, people. What do you want to do about it? If you're the leader, you're supposed to say, here's our problem, but here's God's plan to fix our problem. And that's what Nehemiah is doing. So then he comes to them finally, and he says, well, you've seen this bad situation we're in. We see Jerusalem is desolate. Its gates are burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be humiliated and ashamed. This is important because these people had learned to live with the walls down. It's been a long time. They're there with no walls. He says, do you understand that this is humiliation and shame to all of you? Because if we think our lives are okay, we don't want them rebuilt. Have you noticed that? When things are going great, you don't need God helping you out rebuilding things. I've got this. This is good. It's when our lives are a mess, we come running to God. Can you help us fix it? If we don't understand that things are in a mess, we're not going to want to rebuild it. So he points it all out. They all know, but he's pointing it out. He says, this is not just a broken wall. This is humiliation to the Jewish people. We don't even have a city. We got nothing here. There's nothing here without the wall. We need to do that. And then he says, I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me. He starts with God. He said, oh, by the way, the king got in line. Well, of course he will, because the king of heaven has spoken. So, of course, the king of earth is going to get in line. And he says, the king also told me these great things. And when they heard that God was in it, and even the king of Persia had fallen in line, what were they going to do? Oh, no, it's impossible. You know, it's coming from heaven to Persia to them. And they said, yeah, let us arise and build. So they put all their hands to the good work. Once God spoke, everything else fell in line, and it's going to be hard. 
He didn't say, I've got the angels coming to help you. Let's just wait till tomorrow. He said, we're going to rise and build. We're all going to rise and build. Now, we've been talking about our township for four years now. Its walls are broken down. It's looking pretty bad in a lot of areas of our township. And I believe that God is calling his people together to rebuild. And, and just do something really amazing. There is nothing more motivating or shouldn't be than a visible hand of God working in our favor. And I, want, I want you to start praying, God, am I ready to take the next step here and do something for you? What do you want me to do? You probably won't have to travel very far for him to show you something he wants you to do. It might be your family, it might be your work, it might be your community. I believe God is calling us to action. Christianity is always meant to be a blue-collar religion, right? So what I'm trying to tell you is I believe that God is ready to move. And he's going to call us into a, a place where we have to actually work. And there's going to be people that oppose it. And just, just expect it. It's okay. I believe the hand of God is in it. And I believe the hand of God has something he wants to do amazing. And if this generation won't do it, like the previous generation didn't do it, then he'll just wait until the next generation comes along. It's kind of, kind of our moment, I think, in all of this. And so I'm kind of challenging you to go home and pray about this because I believe that we're supposed to arise and rebuild together. And we'll be talking about that a little bit more as the book of Nehemiah moves on. But for right now, would you all please pray with me?